Here we go. Rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every Thursday. Long form interview. And I'm Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out west, Adam Stanko. Joining us today, Butch Beard. Spent about a decade in the NBA, a champion in 1975 with the Golden State Warriors. 1965 Kentucky Mr. Basketball coming off a state title. A 1972 All-Star after a year of military service. He was a Nets head coach, a Mavs assistant coach on the Knicks staff, a college head coach. We could go anywhere with Butch Beard, but let's start with the recruiting coming out of high school in Hardinsburg, Kentucky, Butch. Kentucky versus Louisville, and Frank DeFord wrote back in 1965 in Sports Illustrated about the ruthless recruiting between Kentucky and Louisville. Can you give us something that speaks to what DeFord was writing about at the time? Well, let's try to put it into perspective of what, you know, what the world was like in 1965. In 1965, uh, the SEC was trying to integrate their conference, and they wanted Kentucky to be the team to do it in basketball. Uh, My mother watched me play basketball my last three years in high school. She wanted me to stay close to home. I wanted to go maybe to a Big Ten school or maybe even out to UCLA if uh, Coach Wooden would would have wanted me to come out there. So that's what was going on at that particular time. And so when I made the statement to everybody that I was going to stay in the state of Kentucky, then it became a battle between the University of Louisville and UK to see where I would end up you know, going to school to play basketball and get an education. So it, it, it was it was quite an ordeal, to say the least. Butch, I've read that Adolf Rupp could not promise to keep you safe if you played it at Kentucky. How much, how much was that a deciding factor in your decision to go to Louisville? He had a home visit. And, you know, you being a you know after after a while now being i've been in the coaching profession and i was a college coach and you go in and you talk about you know what you can do for you you know for the recruit and how you're going to take care of him and help him grow and he started talking about stories about the south you know the kentucky players are going mississippi alabama and playing and having skunks put up on their bench and Coke bottles thrown at them. And and my mother asked, Mr. Rupp, can you protect my son if he goes down south? And to this day, I can I can hear his voice as he said, oh, Miss Beard, I'm telling you, he'll be all right, okay? <laughs> hmm. And so when he left, when he left the visit, walked out of the house, my mother says, you're not going there. But she didn't believe that, you know, that they could find a way to protect me. Was there a part of you, Butch, that wanted to be the the first black basketball player in the SEC? (laughs) Well, Wes Unsel would have been the first if he had gone the year before, okay? (laughs) But he turned down Rupp and the University of Kentucky. I... I was a a Kentucky Wildcat fan all my life because I listened to him on the radio, Kaywood Letford, who was a well-known radio play-by-play guy 
for the University of Kentucky. I listened to him all my life. So it was after I told mom and dad that I was going to stay in the state. Yeah, I, I I could have gone to the University of Kentucky and played and never thought in terms of being the first as much as you would probably think. Okay, I just mm-hmm. wanted to go and play for him. Mm-hmm. That that next year in '66, as a freshman mm-hmm. at at Louisville, and you couldn't play as a freshman, of course. What do you remember about listening to Kentucky? And you grew up a Kentucky fan, but listening to on the radio Kentucky against Texas Western in in the famous title game, which became the movie Glory Road. I roomed with Wes Unsell, and we had a, a little black and white TV. Oh, okay. okay. And you had, had the rabbit ears and everything. <laughs> we were sitting there watching the game. And uh, I I started out pulling for Kentucky because that's just the nature of the beast. And then after watching about two minutes, I was pulling like crazy for Texas Western <laughs> to go ahead and do what they did. So uh, that game had probably more to do with college basketball than even the UCLA-Houston uh, game in the Astrodome because that's where we are now. See, it, it back then there was a quota system with with colleges regardless of in the south or midwest it didn't matter there were a quote there was a quota system of how many black kids that you had on your team as a matter of fact at the university of louisville the four years that i was there they recruited one black athlete in basketball a year but that particular game changed the whole landscape of college basketball and the way that i guess the college coaches perceive african-american athletes i know you've said something like 15 black athletes were were even playing any sports at louisville uh at the when you were there yes yes when i was there there were only 15 black athletes in all sports there i had about uh, 15 or 16 sports and most of them were were football players okay and we used to, Louisville was a commuter school. It was a private school at that particular time. It's now a state school. But I do remember that the kids, they commuted in on the weekends and, and they left. And we had basically the, the university to ourselves. And we used to sit around on the weekends and talk about, we want to get our degree and get the hell out. <laughs> That's the way it was. <laughs> uh, Butch. Your relationship, obviously, with Wes Unseld goes back to your high school high school days, competing against him in the state championship, and then playing with him at Louisville, and then and then even on on the NBA level. For the younger folks that are out there that didn't get a chance to see him and have only watched him on maybe some grainy YouTube video, um, Wes Unseld, the player. What could you tell people about him? Well, first of all, Wes Unseld was listed at six eight. Uh, he wasn't anywhere near six eight. He's about six six. Now he might have been six eight wide, six foot eight inches <laughs> wide, but he wasn't that tall. Had the greatest pair of hands I've ever seen of anybody in my life at for that size. Had great timing, and of course, we also know that he's known for the outlet pass. I mean, 
what I what I have seen Russ Unsell do with the outlet pass on the defensive rebound is truly remarkable. Had the strongest wrist I've ever seen. When I played with him my sophomore year, I played forward, and he used to tell me, and I I was a a bulking one seventy. Okay, <laughs> he he used to tell me he says, hey, you block your man out. When I get the rebound, count the three and take off, and I would be the middle man on the break. And that's how I scored. They didn't run any plays for me back then, but Wes would make sure he'd get the defensive rebound, kick it out to me, and I could do, you know, what little thing that I could do at that time. What was the draft like for you, the NBA draft, the ABA draft, in in 1969? Because I don't, I don't want to, I mean, we, we might get, I had to say basketball draft because then the military draft a, a year later, but what, what was that like in 69? Well, didn't even know I was drafted. It's not like it is now. It is, no, no, of course know, not. Of course it, not. It, How did you find so, out then? I, I, I had, had no idea I was drafted. I had just gotten engaged. Okay. Uh, I do remember I had gone out to, I was staying with my aunt at that particular time uh, in Louisville because I lived in a little little town 35, 40 miles southwest of Louisville. That's where I was, uh, where I was born and grew up. And I remember I had gone out to the university to work out. I was on my way back. Uh, pulled up in front of my aunt's house. I walked in. She said, don't you know you got drafted by the Atlanta Hawks? I said, I I didn't know that, okay? And then they called me, and that's how I found out being the 10th player chosen in the draft. That's how I got found out in 1969. Did you even know when the draft was? Was it, was it on your mind that, yeah. hey, I, I might be getting a call sometime soon? Yeah, I knew when the draft was, but I okay. didn't know if I'd get a call. I mean, uh, I, I never thought in terms of the fact. I thought there would be a possibility for me to be, you know, to get a tryout to play pro ball. But I, it, it didn't consume me like, you know, like it is now. Sure, sure. So, so what were those, what were the next steps? So you got, so you got the call, then what? Well, then they had the ABA draft. And, you know, the same process. And I I will say this, okay? (laughs) Here's something that maybe you know, maybe you don't know. At that particular time, the ABA was just getting started. And they were trying to get as many college players as possible to commit to them so that they would be, you know, a bona fide uh, uh, league. I know the Louisville colonels the owner the browns came to me and asked me if i would sign a a letter stating that i would you know play in the aba and i told him no i would not do that because i wanted to wait and see you know how everything works out okay in the nba and this was before the nba draft and uh, what happened after that was they put out that I had already signed an agreement with the NBA and that I wasn't going to sign with no, with not a ABA team. 
And so I didn't get drafted until the seventh round by the Dallas Chaparrales, okay, in the ABA because that's what they put out there. Do, do you think that the ABA would have been an option for you if, yeah. if maybe yeah. if, the, if the money was right? To be honest with you, to be honest with you, I would have probably if 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 the colonels had drafted me, I would have probably signed there because it's home. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm playing in Freedom Hall. That's what I'm used to playing in, which I thought was the greatest arena in the world. Okay, at that particular time. All right, but they put that out there that I had signed an agreement with the NBA. And I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to play in the ABA. So, you know, they, in in my eye, they, you know, they cut off their nose themselves. I, did, I didn't do it. I was just waiting to see which two teams were going to draft me and then decide what direction I was going to go. So when, when the Hawks drafted me in the first round and the Dallas Chaparrales drafted me in the seventh round, so is that a hard decision to make, money-wise? I don't nope. think so. It's interesting. The dirty tactics have been going on for 50 years, but you think about how differently everything is right yeah. now. It's pretty oh, pretty oh, remarkable. Please. I'm not going to tell you. There was money dropped down on a table, okay, stating that if I go ahead and, you know, really, if I go ahead and, and agree that you know that I would sign with the ABA. There was X amount of money sitting on the table, and believe me, poor, broke, senior athlete, that money was good. <laughs> it looked good, <laughs> but I did not take it. I'll never forget my, you know, my my wife and I. We we went into a another room and we sat and we talked about it for about ten minutes. And I said, I can't do that. I got to give it, I got to give the process a chance to see, you know, which is going to be the best offer for me. You go to, you go to the Hawks, veteran Hawks team They're You're dealing with some rookie mm-hmm. hazing, all that. You said something mm-hmm. though, that I, I think is, is very interesting. You said Wild Hazard sort of took you under his wing. And he said to you that you didn't need to like all of your teammates. What did he mean by that? It was, I'd never been in a situation like where, you know, teammates played with each other. They didn't particularly like each other that well. It was a professional thing. So Walt Hazard got to me really early, and God bless him, because he's the one who made me a professional, okay? He's the one who made sure that, you know, I... On game day, back then they didn't have shoot-arounds. On game day, to have a have a regiment of what to do. We always ate pregame meal by two o'clock. He always took a nap in the afternoon. I mean, and that's a, I mean, those those are very they're small things but important things. Okay, to get you ready to go play. But <laughs> what really happened was this, and this is the reason why he made the comment to me. I had moved to Atlanta, and, and Joe Caldwell, who was in contract dispute with the Hawks, had a party, 
and I go to the party, okay, to meet the rest of the team and, you know, to bond a little bit before camp. And Walt introduces me to Joe, and Joe looks at me and he says, mm, damn rookie, okay? You're just a damn rookie, just like that. Now, hmm. it had to do with Joe was trying to get more money and thought that they were giving me some of his money because Joe talked to me about that later on, <laughs> which was funny. <laughs> and that was the first time I've ever had some, you know, a teammate just come at me that way, okay? <laughs> and so that's when Walt made that comment to me. And so I kept that in the back of my mind for the rest of my career. Back then, you had to earn the right. There was a guy by the name of Grady O'Malley, and I think that he played at my at Manhattan College or Manhattan University in, in, in New York. He made the team, and I made the team. We were the only rookies that made the Hawk team, okay? Back then, the team had – they what, what we did when we traveled, the rookies carried – we carried tape. We carried ultrasound machines. That, that was our responsibility, okay? Mm-hmm. And so Grady and I did that. I'll never forget the first time I came to New York, we went over and got a station wagon so that we would go back to LaGuardia and pick up the luggage and then meet the, the, the veterans at the hotel. Okay. That's what, that's what you did. It was like, it was like joining a fraternity. All right. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it was tough at first. And then one night I'll never forget. We were in Kansas city. Joe Caldwell had his, he had a birthday. Of course, I had to drive him around after the game. We went <laughs> to this we went to this bar and it was like about two in the morning. He made me sit outside, wait for him. This is God's truth. He comes out. He's tipsy. He jumps in the car. I take him back to the hotel. He goes to bed because we had a an afternoon flight. And when I pulled up, he says, you know what? You're not a rookie anymore. He says, you've almost become a veteran. Because at that particular time, Richie Guerin was playing me a little bit more and more because he would play Walt one night if it was back-to-back. He played Walt about 38, 40 minutes. Then he would give me 10 or 15 minutes the next night. Okay? And that's when, that's when I, you know, I turned the corner and became one of the guys. Uh, so so that's what it takes to become one of the guys but with the war going on in Vietnam how much was the how much was the the draft on your mind and the mind of your teammates at the time it wasn't the draft was never on my mind because back in Kentucky I thought okay I thought that I had done everything possible to be in the national guard because uh the the Hawks had just left St. Louis and they had a connection and I was going to national guard meetings in St. Louis. So when I got drafted, I I had, I couldn't believe it. Okay. I couldn't, they claimed my paperwork never got, well, that's what they said in Breckenridge County, 
my paperwork never got to them. They didn't know, and blah, 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 blah. Next thing you know, I'm drafted after I have the best game of my career in the playoffs against L.A. So how did you find out that you were drafted? My wife called and told me I got those papers. I'll never forget. I was in the, I was in the hotel in L.A., and she said, you just got drafted. I said, what are you talking about? She said, papers are here that you got drafted. You got to report to Fort Knox. What's that bus ride like to Fort Knox? <laughs> uh, we got inducted in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was about eight of us. And I was the older of the eight. They gave me the papers. We get on a, we get on a Greyhound bus and we go out to... We go out to Fort Knox, which is a 45-minute drive, and I have, you know, the paperwork for everybody, and hell, I'm in a daze. Um, I I don't have any idea what the hell is going on, and I step off the bus out at Fort Knox, and there's a sergeant there from from the basic who uh, asked, you know, for the for the paperwork and the next thing you know i'm i'm in basic and it's four o'clock the next morning and some sergeant comes running in the barracks throwing a damn trash can down the middle of the barracks at four waking people up i said oh my god what the hell am i into now how did you how did you survive that emotionally well sometimes it's good to be butch beard in the state of kentucky (laughs) (laughs) because when i was at basic they knew who i was okay Mm -hmm. the my drill sergeant knew exactly who i was he had he knew my background everything so after that first night which i just talked about he got me off to the side he says i'm gonna make you the platoon sergeant okay they gave me a room to myself all right. He said, you just make sure nobody goes AWOL here. So that was that that was it. And so uh, it was quite an experience. And, I, and and this is something I will say. I'm an older guy. You guys are you, you guys are just little babies. OK. <laughs> Everybody, every male should experience at least 15 months of military because it's nothing like getting up and doing things that you didn't want to do that somebody made you do. Okay. Even to this day at 73 years old, the first thing I do is I get up, I make up my bed military style. My wife tells me that I make the best bed in the world. It's tight. Okay. That's from the military. I mean, that's what, you know, there is some discipline that goes along with being in the military that I think is good for every male that's, you know, that's walking the face of the earth right now. So it it helped me in the sense to say, to stay grounded in, you know, that way. We use the term perspective all the time, but perspective, Mm -hmm. appreciation, how much of that was was going through your mind as as you're thinking about what comes after the military? Well, now what I didn't know 
was what happened to me, okay? I'm in basic. They know that I'm in basic. They know who I am. I'm in basic. Uh, other than the guys who had who were in the National Guards or in the Army Reserve, when their orders came in, because I did, I knew all about that by being a platoon guy and a platoon sergeant. Everybody went to Nam except me and my company, as interest, as military interest men. Okay, which meant they went to fight the Vietnam War. I only went from one place in Fort Knox to a battalion, and I worked in a in a message center. I didn't do anything. If you really want to know, I didn't do a thing. All I know is that the that the post commander found out that I was on, you know, I, I was on 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 the post, and he came over and he said, "Beard, we have the first army tournament here in basketball. I want that. I want that jug." Okay, so that was my <laughs> mission. But until my orders came down that I was going to stay in Fort Knox. I honestly believed that I was going to go to Vietnam. Everybody sure. in my company went to Vietnam. They went and fought. I didn't. I'm the only one in my company that didn't go. So sometimes, like I said, sometimes it's good to be Butch Beard. Did Did you deal with any feelings of guilt? A little, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I did meet a lot of the guys that I was in the Army with. Later on in life, when I was playing, when I when I went back to playing and when I was coaching, and we talked about it, but uh, it it was it was so different. It was so different because I I honestly believe that this is what I honestly believe. If I had to go and fight in the Vietnam conflict, I'm not even going to call it a war. That I was going to come back alive. But I didn't know that that I did that that was always on my mind. I'm going to come back alive, okay? Mm-hmm. How I don't know, you know, if I would be fully whole or whatever. But I was going to come back alive. All right, so let's get back into basketball. And there's no mm-hmm. no real seamless transition. But you know, a few years later, you spent nine years in the league, and and a few years later, you're winning a title with the Golden State Warriors, sweeping. Wes Unseld bullets. Mm-hmm. What from from that series or even from from that season when you look back on it, is there something that will always stick with you? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm going to say this, guys. I had the greatest run of basketball in, in a ten year run that you ever know. Okay, in 1965, I was with uh, my high school team won the state title. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there was a four-year run there at the University of Louisville that we were good. And we were rated as high as number two in the nation at, at one time. But nobody was going to beat UCLA, even though in the back of my little peanut brain, I thought we were good enough to beat them if we had an opportunity to play them at Freedom Hall. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, when you really look at it, no, we didn't. Okay. So 10 years, you know, doing that 10-year run, I won a high school title and an NBA title. So you can't get too much better than that and still be really good in college. That, that's, that's a hell of a run, okay? 
that is one hell of a run. And uh, while all that's going on, was able to be, you know, an NBA all-star, I, I please, I, I, hey, I, I don't think you can get it, you know, much better than that. You, you say you couldn't get much better, and then you bring up the all-star game. So, 72, <laughs> <laughs> that East team, unselled, Havlicek, Cowens, West had Kareem, Elvin Hayes, Wilt, Oscar, Jerry West, Connie Hawkins. So, you walk into the locker room for the 1972 All-Star game. Paint the picture for me. What, oh, what's, my God. What's everyone, oh. what's everyone like in that locker room? Oh, man, you're talking about it all. Come on now. I just now, look, I just got an early out from the Army. I go to Cleveland, which is what? They are just, uh, this was their second year in existence, okay? And we're playing pretty well. The Cleveland Cavaliers, we're not bad in the East. We're playing pretty well. That's the reason why I guess I was selected. Bill Fitz says he, you know, later on he told me he kind of politicked for me. I said, okay, whatever. Whatever it was, you both. Okay. But, <laughs> but I walk in there, and it was my first time being around Red, Red Holzman, okay, because he was the coach. And there's Walt Fraser across from me, Dave DeBusher, you know, down, the, you know, I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking. And I'll never forget, <laughs> Red says, I, I I hope I can get somebody to lead me in rebounding. And so DeBusher raises his hand and he says, uh, how many rebounds do you need? So Red says, I need a, <laughs> at least 12. He says, what do I get out of it? And Red says, well, I have a six-pack here waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave says, no problem. I'll take care of that. <laughs> I mean, it, it was such, man, I, I'm just sitting there in awe because these are guys that not only have I played against, but I admire as players, okay? And so – I was like a little kid in a candy store to be around those great players. Being around Wilt, what's the feeling? No, please. I'm going to tell you a Wilt Chamberlain Butchbeard story. And it's a true story. Good. Okay. <laughs> that was everything I'm telling you is true, but it's yeah. true. <laughs> Guys, my year in Seattle. Okay, I get traded to Seattle later on. We come in and we play the Lakers in the Phelps Forum. Now, we're warming up, and with Spencer and Freddie and, I mean, Garfield Hurd. I mean, we were young, dumb, crazy. Dick Snyder. We put on one hell of a warm-up line. I... We were dunking, and it, it was crazy. I'll never forget. We're running to, to the benches, and Jerry West says, now that y'all won the dunking contest, will you win? let's see if you win the game. Swear to God, <laughs> that's exactly what he said. Okay? So <laughs> so they're beating the snot out of us. We're playing pretty well for about a quarter and a half, though. The ball is thrown down inside the wilt. And just like the old days, you're all so young, you don't know. But the 
the Boston Celtics with the Jones boys, you know, they used to beat the hell out of Will. So I go in the, I go down and he puts the ball on the floor and I'm smacking him all over his arm and they call a foul and I'm off balance. Right. And all of a sudden I feel like I'm getting ready to hit the floor and he, and I'm lifted up off the floor. He's, he just picks me up like and cradles me like a baby. <laughs> now he makes a motion like he's going to throw me to the floor. I swear it. And I'm holding on for dear life. And now the damn people in the felt form start laughing. And, and I turned to him when he's shooting the free throws. I said, you know what? I have a son. He's going to be seven feet tall and he's going to whip your butt. You know that, don't you? <laughs> he, cracked. he just cracked up. But that, it, it's a true story. And I said, I saw this guy get beat up by the Jones guys all the time. He never grabbed them and did that to them. Why did he do this to me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was it was it really wilts against everybody else at that time yeah because the game was different so you you know you went inside he went inside by far the strongest guy i've ever been around really and when he really wanted to dominate he could dominate you, you never you never had to wait outside a bar for wilt did you no 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 the one thing the one thing about wilt Wilt, you could not get your shot off on Wilt if he was if he ever bent his knees and you were going to the hoop, you couldn't get it off. And he was going to alter it or block it. But if he was just standing there, you could get your shot off on him. Now you just don't try to dunk on him. Otherwise, you know he would really punish you, and he'd tell you, you know, I'll punish you. So occasionally, you know, you you could you could sneak you could sneak two points on him that way, <laughs> and turn around and laugh at him, and he said, "Oh God, <laughs> you know," he would say, "I'll take care of that the next time," which he did. You played with Rick Barry, obviously played against mm-hmm. all these guys that we named some of the all-time greats during your stretch. Who was the greatest player you ever saw? My ex, you know, my old, my old teammate. Rick Barry's probably the most misunderstood guy I think I've ever been around in my life. Really. Great player. Great player. Great understanding of the game. Uh, Was a little bit of a perfectionist, but of course he had that persona of being a crybaby, so he was misunderstood. Uh, The year that we won the championship out of Golden State, uh, I'll never forget. We were we were playing Buffalo, and we were on a break, and and I actually should have stopped at the free throw line, and I kept going and going, and I ended up with a charge. And I'll never forget. It, it was a timeout, and he's just wearing me out, really. You know, but you gotta stop at the free throw line. But you stop at the free throw line, you can have the jump shot. It's going just driving me nuts, right? <laughs> and so we're we we're out on the break again and you know this time i stopped pull up hit a jumper and he said see how easy that was why didn't you do it the first time i just said oh my god ricky you're about to drive me crazy you know but rick i think i'm one of very few people that could get on rick too when he did wrong and i think and he never he never you know fought back because there were there were times uh, in '75 
when in a timeout before Al got in that huddle, I, I'd say to Rick, Rick, you want to play tonight or what? Because we're out here busting our butt trying to win this damn game, and you're not doing anything, okay? You, if you yeah. want to play, all right, come on and play. If you don't want to play, let us all know. Let's see if we can get somebody else in to play. Now, I'll give you a prime example. We're playing Phoenix, and he didn't want to bust a grape. I'm, not at all. Not at all. He was he was having running dialogue with people on the sideline. It was crazy, and I'll never forget. We we went we went out, and I said to Al, I said, Al, Rick doesn't want to play. He doesn't want to play. I, and we're getting ready to start a doggone East Coast trip. We were going through Phoenix, and we were headed east. I said he doesn't want to play. Take him out. We're we're working too hard. Come on, man. And then I went up to Rick. I said, Come on, do you want to play or what? So he cursed me out. I cursed back at him. He went out and he scored 24 points in about an eight-minute period. Then we sat down and we watched the rest of the game because it's garbage. And I said, Rick, is this so damn hard? Huh? Is this so damn hard if you just come and get it done? Oh, shut up, Butchie. Shut up. Shut up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and, I, and, and, I feel, and I feel fortunate that I've had a long relationship with Rick. And that I feel is different from so many others. And as you said, being misunderstood, but Rick's one of the people that never misses a birthday. Um, I'm always, you know, I'm always thrilled to receive an email joke from Rick or a text to say hello and getting to know him, getting to know him in that way has been really rewarding. Yeah. Well, even now, okay. Rick Berry, Clifford Bray, Jeff Mullins and I, we, we are all the time, you know, texting or calling. Okay, so it, it it it's truly amazing. It really is truly amazing. And you're right; that's who he is. He can be a little difficult at times, but that's who he is. All right, so you were able to figure out what got Rick Barry going. So let's let's fast forward from your playing days to your coaching career. Did you ever figure out what made Derek Coleman tick? To this day, zero. to this day zero and you know i tried telling him and and that's no lie at that particular time dc and carl malone were the two best forwards to ever play the game during that period i thought dc had more skill than carl malone he just didn't have the work ethic that's that was the only difference Okay, but as far as skill is concerned, DC had skill. DC could have really been a great, great, great player. And he probably would have won two or three championships if he ever, you know, put himself into it. And I used to tell him that all the time. And he says, I give you 2010 every night. What else do you want from me? I said, well, the nights that, you know, that you're going well, not only do you give me 20 and 10 rebounds, see, you give me 35 and 15 and I win easily and you make me look like a great coach, you know? He said, ah, okay, hey, I give you 20 and 10. He, he just, I couldn't convince him to work hard so that his skills would be, you know, better than what they were. I fought him all the time on that. I really did. What about coaching Kenny Anderson at that time? What was that experience like? 
well, that group was different. I'm sitting right now in my little <laughs> in my little ego room, and I got a picture of that group. Okay, because that was my first professional coaching career team. Okay, Kenny wanted to be, you know, like Derek, and he, Derek never wanted to practice; he just wanted to play. Okay. Kenny wanted to do the same thing, and I tried to explain to Kenny, Kenny, you're too small. You have to practice to keep your skill, you know, at a level where you have an advantage. You just can't sit over there and then come out and bully people because D.C. is big enough. He can, over, you know, he can physically, you know, overcome people that way. But you can't. And, boy, it was a fight all the time with Kenny to get him to practice to get him to understand what to do. I'm pretty sure now that Kenny's a coach, I would like to have that conversation with him now. I really would. I ran into Kevin Edwards at the last uh, NBA draft and tryout in Chicago last year. And and he was my two guard until he got hurt. I I, have to think if I could have kept everybody healthy, I might have been able to have gotten them into the playoffs. We had just far too many injuries, but it it was a struggle. That was a hard group. It was a hard group. They were a hard group. They fought. They they fought everything, and they had a great coach before me, and you know, and Chuck Daly. So that I think they really respected him, and they took liberty with me, and I tried to work with them through the organization, and it was the wildest damn thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> give, me some, give us something that, when you, when you think back on, it was the wildest damn thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, an, an example of that. Well, just trying to get them to practice. We won't get into the dress code thing, because that dress code thing that you might have read about was not my idea. That was the organization's idea, and they stuck me out there first, you know, as the head coach. That's what I wanted. I didn't care what they wore, especially on back-to-back games, if we got into the next town at 2, 3 in the morning, Mm -hmm. okay? A jumpsuit, it didn't matter, you know, that didn't bother me. Now, if we got there before 12 o'clock, that meant that, you know, the public would see us, okay? So... I was all in favor of at least having a sport coat because I don't like to dress up, you know, in that situation either. All right. So to continually have that put in the paper that Derek Cohen was defying me, hard reference pissed me off because he really wasn't. And then, you know, what we were finding him, we were finding him something like $500 or whatever the hell it was. Maybe it was $100. I don't know what it was. I mean, he, he's making $7 million. You think that's going to hurt him? That's like no. a dollar ticket, okay? Come on. What, why do I have to call back and tell, you know, and tell Will, <laughs> Will Tree, I said, Will, I don't care what he wears. I only care if he helps me win games, okay? But, oh, God, what a mess that ended up being. You also had to find Sean Bradley because he... Oh, well, that was different. Oh, please, 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 please. That's a whole entirely different animal in itself. Come on. We trade for Sean, and Sean doesn't, you know, he's still living in in southern Jersey. 
<laughs> and he's driving up for practice. Okay, and he's driving up for games, okay, and going back home, okay? You have shoot around. He drive back home and then drive back to the Come on. Sean, you make enough money that, you know what, you you come up here, you have the shoot around, you can get a hotel over there in the Meadowlands. After the game, you can go home if we're not going anyplace. Come on. That, that, that just didn't make any sense. He was late. So I said, hell, I'm going to take some of your money. I took Yinkadel Ray's money, too. He's sitting in there trying to eat a damn hot dog, thinking I didn't smell it. <laughs> I just told Yink, I said, is that a hot dog I smell? No, Coach, it's not a hot dog. I said, well, how come it smells like a hot dog that smells that's coming out of your little cubicle there? I don't know. So I reached in there. I said, is, it, is this a hot dog? Yeah, I guess so. I said, that's a $500 hot dog. You should have gotten more than one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> God bless him too, boy. It was a nice group. I had fun with them. They may not have had much fun with me. I had fun with them. Uh, how good could Yankadare have have really been? Oh, we we hear about know. the legend of Yankadare, but how good could he have been? I don't know. Cause first of all, I don't even know how Yinka was. Okay. <laughs> right. oh, I'm, yeah. I'm being honest with you. I have yeah. no idea. I have no idea how old he was. I, I, I mean, the first, the first, first day of training camp, hell, the the after evening practice, hell, he looked older than me, and he was supposed to be twenty one. So, <laughs> my God, his body had already broken down. I said, Oh God, I don't know how old he is. Oh man. Well, well, as as wild as wild as the times were in New Jersey, when you get to Dallas and you've got Jimmy Jackson and Jason <laughs> Kidd and, and Tony Braxton, <laughs> how did you navigate that? Well, I, I was thank God I wasn't the head coach. I was an assistant coach and Jim Clements was the head coach. And then when all that craziness got started, okay, I mean... It was, it was truly remarkable. All of it, 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 I couldn't believe what I was, was in. Okay. I mean, it was, it, it ended up being Jason and Jimmy. All right. Chasing Tony, Tony not caring about either one of them. And then the team was taking sides. So I'll never forget. We had, we, we, we had a damn team meeting. And I said, guys, it's a woman that's breaking us apart. And if, if the woman is that good, please, I want to see what her mother looks like. Because I want to <laughs> date her mother. Come on. I, it, it just, you know, they were young. They were young. I, I talked to Jimmy Jackson about that not long ago, okay? And we were laughing about it. I mean, but that's you know, when you're young, you do things, okay? You do crazy stuff. But but it, but it's and fair to say that Tony Braxton broke apart that. She broke that team up, and she didn't give a crap about either one of them. <laughs> that's what that was the thing that was so bad about it. She was she was you know she was getting attention. 
her career was just getting started, okay? Unchained my heart, okay? <laughs> God, come on now. But uh, it just, it, oh, man. Oh, man. And, that, and I'm telling you, the team chose sides between Jimmy and Jason. Uh, we had a thing uh, with Jason. I did. And I went to the organization about Jason. I said, if Jason has a ratio of three assists to turnovers, that I would take him out to get something to eat, okay? So, you know, and he would look at that stat sheet. I I had him buy into it, okay? He wanted he wanted to make sure he had a three to one, you know, ratio turnover ratio, okay? So that that was good. I had him thinking in those terms, all right? So, I think it all got really bad. We came to New York and Jimmy and. Well, Jason and I had gone out to get something to eat. Then he came back to the hotel, found out that Jimmy was going to be with Tony, and they were going. She was, she had some recording gig that she was going to do at a studio late that night. And oh God, it just—you should have seen shoot around the next morning. It was the damnest thing I've ever seen, really. Guys looking at one another. I mean, yeah, really. The guy, I mean, the team. There was four guys over here behind Jimmy. Four guys over here behind Jason. I said, "Man, this can't be real. This just can't be real." But they were young. They were young. And did they they fight it? They fight it out? No, they didn't fight it out. They you just knew you just knew that at that particular time they were they were fighting over those two guys were fighting over her attention. And it broke, and the team got involved in it. Unbreak my heart. So, so Butch, as a basketball player, seeing Jason Kidd at at that time, forget the Tony Braxton stuff for for a moment. Just mm-hmm. he seems to be one of the rare guys in the NBA that people who played with him or or coached him just describe as having this special quality to him. What types of things did you see in practice in games that just led you to believe he was different? Oh, you knew he was different, and I, I saw him when he was in high school. Okay, when he was in high school, I was the head coach at at Howard University, and saw him at the Nike uh, Invitational in Indianapolis, and you knew he was different then. Okay, uh, because he was a pass first guy. Although in high school he was big and strong enough that he could overpower kids getting to the hoop. And as a pro, what I tried to get him to do is he saw the game differently. You, you could tell that. He, he was way ahead of what was going on. I just tried to get him to tone down. Don't try to make that pass that you know is there. The defense may be looking at you. You just make sure that that pass is going to be completed to your teammate, okay? And that's the reason why we had that three-to-one ratio, all right? Because he could have 10 assists and have eight or nine turnovers, all right, trying to trying to make a play. Right. So right. I just tried to get him to tone it down a little bit. But you knew, you knew he was different. You knew he was, he was going to be great at what he did because of, what, because of his basketball IQ. All right, let's wrap it up shortly. And we, we, we appreciate 
all the time. Do you think your candor as a as a coach hurts you? Yeah. I I I I won't tell you some of the things I said to some of the players, you know, man to man. But I always I always wanted to be truthful to, you know, my players at every level that I've coached. And, you know, sometimes the truth, it hurts. But the truth has always been good for me. And as Kevin Edwards says, you know, Coach, when I saw him last last year in Chicago, he said, the one good thing is you didn't lie to us. He said, you did not lie to us. And I did not lie to them about what was going to happen to them in the future, not right then at the present time. What were some of the craziest things front offices did to keep you from doing your job as a coach, whether it was a head coach or an assistant? I, you know what? I won't even discuss some of it because that is really – that's in my book. What's wrong with you? I can't give you all of my material. So when's the book I'm coming on, out? I'm going to so write we'll, a book. We'll plug I, the I'm book. We'll on... plug the book right now. Give us a teaser. No, no, no. I'm writing I'm, – as we speak, I am writing the book right now. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I'm writing the book. I I think that my coaching career got really, <laughs> really, really, really done in by being, you know, truthful with players and with management. I I wrote I wrote a report with with the Nets after they fired me. Uh, they wanted me to write a report on their team. <laughs> and and their players. And when I finished the report, you know, later on I did run into a couple of those of the owners and they said you were right. I said, "Why would not be right?" Hell, I was with them every day. You weren't. I knew what I had. You didn't. Makes sense. I, <laughs> makes more than sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense. Where, yeah, you, I, I mean, you guys had you had a bunch of veterans on those teams. Right? Were any of those guys yeah. on your side? They are now. Well, I run it's into the, I run into them occasionally, and they not talk at the about, time. huh? At, not at just, the time. Not at the time because at the time, you know, <laughs> it, it, it all depends upon what you want out of it. Okay, I always thought that through hard work, you would give yourself a chance to accomplish anything you wanted in life. You may not get there, but it gives you a chance. But if you don't want to work hard, don't expect, you know, don't expect the riches. And it was a group of guys who, you know, they they had they had had great college careers. They had done okay in the pros. But they hadn't won a championship, and as I as I tried to explain to them, winning a championship takes luck, but it also takes hard work, and it takes sacrifice by everybody that's on the team. And if you don't want to do that, don't expect it to happen. It's fair. The Golden State Warriors are a prime example in 1975. Rick Barry, we knew was a star. But Jamal Wilkes was Rookie of the Year. 
the rest of us had our roles and we played our role well and we did it well and we liked each other. I, I, I don't even know if that 94, 95 team net team, I don't even know if they call each other. Mm. I know the 75 championship warriors call each other. We, uh, we want to wrap this up. We appreciate everything. We appreciate the candor you've given to us at least, uh, even if it wasn't appreciated sometimes throughout, throughout the coaching career. And, this is the rejecting the screen podcast. So we always end the podcast asking the question game on the line game seven critical situation. Who are you going to, to reject the screen, go ISO for a game winning bucket. And it can be anyone you've ever played with against coached. Uh, the only one that we say no one can say is, is Michael Jordan. Cause we hear that answer too often. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming well, you're not even going to say him anyway. So I'm curious no, no, as to your I'm answer. Saying, to that. I'm not saying him, Jay. I'm not. Today, today is Kobe. Do, do you have a, a story that stands out about Kobe on the floor from coaching against him? No, I bet it when he was, <laughs> when he was just getting started. And uh, I had gone, they played in the Meadowlands and I had gone into the locker room to mess with, with Phil Jackson and Jim Clemens, and then I went into the players' side, and he was there. He was so young. Ron Harper was sitting there with ice all over him, and we were laughing. And Ron and I were saying, you know, one of these days, young man, you're going to have ice all over He said, I'll never need ice on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never need ice on me. Oh, but you will, young man. Oh, but you will. <laughs> well, that was, and then, so, so he got drafted the year after you were out in – in New Jersey, where the Nets, you think the Nets were actually going to draft him? Hey, here's the here's the best story of all, and a true story as well. I was an assistant coach with Jim Clemens, and also uh, uh, at the Dallas <laughs> Mavs. We're in the draft, and I asked I asked the people who you know run the draft. I mean, all our uh, scouts. I said, who's the best guy in the draft? They said, Kobe Bryant, he's a high school kid, but he's not, you know, he's not, uh, you know, we, we, we don't know. We think he's going to be the best. And they didn't know whether at that particular time they were going to break up three J's. Okay. So I made a comment to them. I said, why don't we bring him in and try him out? I know that the word was out there that he only wanted to go to L.A., I said, but I think he would want to play with Jason and Jimmy if you all think that he's going to be the best player in the draft. We were afraid to do that. We ended up drafting Samaki Walker. I'll never forget. I was running around all over, you know, working out Eric Dampier and some other players and, you know, but I said, man, that's what we should have done. I sat there, even those five minutes before we drafted, I said, we should draft this kid. Why were they afraid to even not even to bring him in? Because the word had gotten out there that he wasn't gonna, you know, he wasn't going to work out for other teams mm-hmm. and things like that. I said, I think he would come. I think he would come and at least give us a, you know, a look see. I really do. That's awesome. All right, well, he's he's Butch Beard, the seventy five champ with the Warriors, and he talked about those ten years. 
started in 1965 as state champion in Kentucky as Mr. Basketball. A heck of a career on and off the court. But we really do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, guys. Have a good day. You as well, Butch. Thank you. So I hadn't talked to Butch in years and sent him a note. And you never know if phone numbers change or not. Right. And, you know, the current players, as Jerome Weitzman had just written in Bleacher Report, that the current numbers change all the time. The former former players, former coaches, the number happened to be the same. We got on the phone last night. We were recording this on Monday for Thursday. And we were talking and sounded like he was in great health. He's spending some time in Florida now. And he's his place in Harlem. He lives a few blocks away from Earl the Pearl Monroe and a few blocks away from Clyde Frazier. So it's great that that those three still get together because you know, another part of Butch's career, he was an assistant with the Knicks when they rolled out the first all African-American roster in the NBA when Red Holtzman was their head coach. And then he was a, he was a commentator on for, for Nick games for a long time. And as always, we just spent an hour with Butch Beard and there's so much they don't get to because as we always say, Adam, every single player, no matter their accomplishments in the league have story after story after story that deserves to be told. It's remarkable. I mean, his his journey with Wes Unseld alone is incredible. To play against the guy in the high school state championship and then 10 years later play against that same guy in the NBA finals in maybe the greatest upset of all time in, in NBA history in terms of that, that finals upset uh, that the Warriors had over, over the Bullets. And you bring up the, the Knicks story. When Red Holtzman put together that roster it was interesting, you know, they, that Knicks team had talked about as they're trying to figure out who their roster is going to be, and he's an assistant on it, and we didn't even get a chance to ask him about this. They're trying to figure out who the best players are for the team, and, and his quote from that time was, Red, do you realize we've chosen nothing but black players? Red looked at him and said, we're choosing the best team in talent, not in color. I don't care if they are all green. And that's how they ended up with that ball club, and that's how the NBA ended up with, with the, you know, what led to the integration that we see now. And, and certainly he talked about same thing with his college days that he's getting death threats. If he would have gone to Kentucky to integrate the sec basketball world. And now you look at the sec basketball world and how much it's all changed over the last 50 years. Truly incredible. Yeah. I'm, I'm just glad that I found out that I have something in common with Jason Kidd and Jimmy Jackson, because Tony Braxton was never interested in me either. So now <laughs> You can follow Adam on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Adam's been much more active on the Instagram page. I got I to gotta step it up. At rejecting up. underscore the underscore screen. At rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Where you can find audiograms and more promotion for the podcast. So we suggest that you go there. And also we ask you to do one of these five things. Download. Subscribe, rate, review, share. I'm not asking you to do all of them. Pick one this week. Pick another one go. the next week. Pick another there one the go. following week. You're all like Trisha from the pizza spot near Adam's house. Super then fan. You'll all be in our good graces. Well, you are anyway if you're still listening. And check out everything else going on on the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On NBA, five days a week, national program. Locked On Fantasy Hoops, Josh Lloyd, Hollinger, and Duncan with John Hollinger and Nate Duncan every Monday. And, of course, your team every day. All 30 teams around the NBA puts out a 25-minute podcast every single day. 
here on the Lockdown Podcast Network. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.